0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. This is sort of a a project that's come out of both friendship and intellectual engagement as well. Um, When Laura came to the School of Education, we sort of clicked as people and friends and then started to talk about our various um, areas of interest and realised that there was something there that we were very interested in and and wanted to try and uh, put together. And the genesis of the work really sort of um, came about last year and then we presented its initial form uh, in Brisbane and it was there that Paul was in the audience and then asked us if we would come and share it in Cambridge. So um, here we are. Part of that was then the impetus to write it up, you know, because often you have good ideas and you talk a lot and do papers at conferences, but it's, the, the next bit's always the hardest then, is really to sit down and, and write it up. And so we decided to do that, and it coincided with the special issue of research papers in education, which Sylvia, is, Sylvia Green is editing and is coming out of uh, um, Cambridge Assessment. And so we thought, right? There's a deadline, there's a focus, and um, and so we did it, and it's been accepted, and it's uh, going to come out in the summer. So it's probably this is a bit of the roadshow. We're now it's published, and uh, we'd like to sort of disseminate uh, the work. So, and we'd also say just thank you very much for giving up your Wednesday evening to come and um, to come and listen. So. It's really, the talk is, is sort of trying to think about thinking about assessment differently and what it would look like if we applied a children's rights framework to it. And just that this is the outline um, sort of of the talk and then how it sort of the, the paper came together. so there's a bit of a context around. The notion that maybe too much testing is, is bad for your health. And then we'll sort of talk about how we're going to have to apply children's rights law uh, to educational assessment, and then look at assessment practice in the light of three fundamental children's rights principles. And then we'll like some discussion and some reflection on what might a consideration of children's rights bring to assessment. So the sort of context about, you know, is too much testing uh, bad for your health? And I think there has been a a sort of a concern in the UK that we have some of the most frequently tested children in the world. And this sort of um, statistic came out of the House of Commons report in 2008, that the average people in England would take nearly 70 tests during a school career. And the fact that assessment practice is widely reported to have a significant adverse impact on children and their education and their health and well-being did prompt the UN special rapporteur on the right to education in 2003 to actually suggest that the UK's testing system was in breach of international children's rights standards. So that was back in 2003. Um, and then recently, just at Easter, um, Carolyn Blower, the NUT uh, president, she also made the link in the discussion around the, this year's boycott of the Key Stage Two tests, that that Sats could be in breach of children's rights. So there's something about children being exposed to multiple formal high-stakes tests across their whole school career, which can take about 14 years, and then this sort of political, academic, and policy concern that children might be suffering unduly because of the amount of testing, and and too much testing has adverse consequences. And I think that we were, in our discussions, were suggesting that while it might have seemed obvious to us that the, that the sort of the testing and assessment on one hand and children's rights on the other, it seemed an obvious connection, but it was one that's rarely rarely made. And so it was how do you bring, bring that together? Um, and... It, the thing that might make it obvious is the fact that governments are signatories to relevant international treaties. They have signed up to these and they have primary responsibility for ensuring that educational practice is compatible with international children's rights standards. So the governments have the responsibility for that. But again, the House of Commons, the Select Committee report was saying that Maybe it's the use of national testing, using it in inappropriate ways that that can lead to the damaging consequences for children and the education system. And it's the fact that um, all the devolved governments of the UK have committed to a vision of childhood. They've all got children's plans. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland all have them. Uh, in England, it's called the Children's Plan. Um, it's the National Plan for Children and Young People in Wales. And on our own government, it's the 10-Year Strategy for Children and Young People. So these documents are coming out of government departments. There's an explicit commitment to children's rights in these documents. But that commitment then seems to evaporate as the documents are then produced in education generally, and then in assessment specifically. So in other areas of childhood, um, they are focusing on children's rights. But in the documentation around education and, and in assessment, it's less so. And if we think about assessment then and what's happening in the field of assessment, there seems to be... I've picked out two of what I see as movements, but there's probably more. But we have seen over the last decade or so this push. I mean, and we were here yesterday celebrating the work of the Assessment Reform Group, and the, their work was all about number one up here, sort of this push for the large-scale implementation of formative assessment practices within schools and classrooms. But we still have continuing and in certain Um, states, growing dominance of high stakes testing and assessment for accountability across nations and states. So you've got these two movements which are very much in tension with each other at times. And those tensions have been acknowledged in policy directions. So while you've got policy that argues for the efficacy and importance of formative assessment practice, to greatly improve student learning and achievement, but we don't know whether such practices actually do create and sustain better equity of student outcomes. And then tests are seen as significant mechanisms for reform of curriculum and assessment in order to raise standards of education. So they're always there in the, 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 the reform area. So there's friction. There seems to be friction between directions in order to achieve the goal of a better education for all. But there's also a considerable lack of coherence between assessments, I would say, at the classroom, school and system level. And this
1: is where I'm handing over to Laura. Nice cosy. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I thought I'd start by saying something very basic about the human rights law that actually applies in this area and please um, stop me if there are any questions you want to ask or I'm using language that people don't understand. Lawyers have a tendency to do that. Basically there are two legally binding treaties that are particularly relevant to issues of children's rights and education and assessment and they are the European Convention on Human Rights and the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and I think most of you would have heard of both of them. Is Is that right? Yeah. Um, Both of them contain an explicit right to education. That's worded differently. It's very simple in the the European Convention, very detailed in the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And they both contain a general prohibition on discrimination, which we're going to come back to. The Convention on the Rights of the Child, though it's much more detailed in terms of children's rights, the European Convention is a right for all peoples, adults and children alike. And the Convention on the Rights of the Child contains dedicated provisions for children, which are there effectively to recognise their vulnerability usually, but also their lack of control over their own lives or their lack of competence generally. And the two principles that are quite distinctive, and we're going to look at those in some detail this evening, are the first one is Article 3, and that's a principle which says that in all decisions that are made about children, their best interests must be a primary consideration. That's the first one. And the second one is that all children who can express a view have a right to have that view given due weight in all matters affecting them. Again, we're going to look at both of these. I just want to say something briefly about their legal enforcement, because I think it will help you understand the broader context of the talk. They're enforced really quite differently. The European Convention on Human Rights has become incorporated into UK law uh, because of the Human Rights Act 1998. And what that means is that since 2000, it's been possible for individuals and citizens who feel that their rights have been breached under the European Convention to go to local courts and complain. Okay, and there have been some cases which I'll come back to. The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is quite different and doesn't really match what I think is most people's understanding of how law is enforced. It doesn't have any right of individual petition. So no child can go to a court or tribunal or a body directly and say that their rights have been breached. The way it's enforced is through what's called periodic reporting. And that means that every five years, each country signs the UK in this instance has to report to a committee of experts, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, and that committee issues a report, which is its concluding observations on how a country is doing. And that works in quite an unusual way. It's very common in, within the UN treaty system. Basically, it's described as the mobilisation of shame. that like basically, until you hold your country to your account, it's exposed in an international arena for what it's not doing. And the UK was reported on last in 2008. So two, both international treaty obligations both apply. The Convention on the Rights of the Child has some distinctive principles, but it's not enforced in the way that we might understand legal enforcement to work normally. Why make the links to assessment? So that's the background and context broadly of the laws. What's the link to assessment? It's interesting, if you scan all of the treaties, not just those two, and all of them, and I've reviewed them all, is there's no mention in any of them of assessment, testing or examinations. They're not mentioned explicitly. However, every international human rights treaty refers to education at some point. It's ubiquitous. It's one of the ones that appears everywhere, and that makes it unusual for lots of reasons. And we know that education is is defined very broadly whenever the treaties are interpreted and applied. It covers all aspects of children's schooling, and I've given you an example here from one uh, convention, the UNESCO Convention Against Discrimination in Education, saying that it applies to all types and levels, includes access to education, standard and quality, and the conditions under which it is given, which of course must include assessment, testing, and, and general practice in that area. But we also have a quite recent and very specific example of the provisions being applied to something very directly related to assessment, and that's a case called DH and the Czech Republic. I well, as should have said, the way in which um, all human rights treaties work is that the, the governments sign up to them all obligations in human rights treaties are on states' parties. There are no obligations put, well, very few obligations put on private parties in international conventions. Rights flow downhill. They flow from state to citizen to, to, not to citizen to person within the state. And that person owes nothing back up. And maybe we can talk about that later on. So in this case, this is a case taken under the European Convention on Human Rights, and it was DH and others there were a series of applicants as a big test case. Take the Czech Republic to court. And DH was a person from the Roma community. And what was happening in the Czech Republic was basically that there was a disproportionate number of Roma children in special schools. It was estimated that around 50% of Roma children ended up in special schools and that in special schools, 90% of the children were Roma children. Now, you can already see there has to be some problem with that. And the way in which the... So what basically DH and others were arguing was that they had been indirectly discriminated against whenever they were put into special schools and given their education there. And the Czech Republic did what I think most states would, would have done in that instance. They tried to justify the outcome of the discrimination by saying that they had used objective testing systems to decide who was going to special schools. So they called evidence of the, t- the IQ and other tests that they'd used and the educational psychologists and their training and qualifications to say that these were objective, fair tests. And the European Court of Human Rights said they weren't. They said these tests were culturally biased tests. They were therefore unlawful and the discrimination could not be justified. Now, this is an, a landmark legal decision. I very rarely use that term in all sorts of ways. The main way in which it is, which is not directly relevant, is it's the first time the court accepted indirect discrimination in a test case. But from the purpose of today, what it has done is that it's opened the doors for other cases like that in the domestic courts. Do so you think the European Convention on Human Rights Incorporated into UK law, so basically any person who feels that they have been, that they've had some adverse consequence from having done a test that in some way is biased against them on some ground, be it gender or race or something else, then has an option now to challenge the nature of those tests in domestic courts. Now that's a practice that's been happening for some time within the American legal system as you might imagine, there's been a series of cases um, and successful cases challenging particular tests across the American states. But it's something now that, since the DH case two years ago, is much more likely here. So does it apply? Yes, of course it does. We realise that these principles do apply to testing. And that the UK then has basically committed publicly through signing these conventions, signing the European Convention 50 years ago and signing the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child 21 years ago, that it's bound legally to ensure that what happens to children in schools... And elsewhere is compatible with these fundamental human rights principles, including assessment. What are the principles? I mean, the, the Convention has forty-one substantive rights in it, and it, there is a principle of human rights law that all human rights are indivisible, interrelated, and interdependent. And that, in theory, means that you can't look at one without looking at the other, at any of the all of the others. Which, of course, is impractical and isn't really true. And what we've done in the context of our discussion and paper has have, we've. Try to focus on what we think are some of the key principles from the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and really think through what they mean for assessment. And the crucial ones, of course, are those that define education, particularly Article 29 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, where there's a very detailed, quite long statement of the aims of education. So, what a rights based education should be trying to achieve, with a focus on ensuring that children develop to the best of their ability in, in all areas. Very, very broad statement. We're not going to look specifically at that, that's the broader context of what we're looking at. But the three we are going to look at are three of four cross-cutting principles of the Convention. And they are, the one that I mentioned, the best interests of the child are A, primary consideration, non-discrimination and participation. The fourth one, just for your interest, is the child's right to life, survival and development. Now clearly there is a relevance in the aspect of development, but we're not going to talk about it today. Starting with the best interest principle, the text of the convention is in italics and basically it says that in all actions concerning children, whether undertaken by public or private social welfare institutions, courts of law, administrative authorities very wide or legislative bodies, the best interest of the child shall be a primary consideration. I've overemphasised the a primary consideration and I'm sure you can think why. Um, It's the second point there, the bullet point, is that during the drafting of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, that word was very hotly contested. Many states were arguing that it should be that the child's uh, best interest should be the primary consideration. Can you all see how that would be a very different provision? There's something very different from having children's best interests as taking precedence as opposed to being factored in along with other interests and that can result in really quite different outcomes when it's worded that way. So children's best interests are not necessarily predominant, and those making decisions about children can take into account of other broader factors, including the public interest. But what it requires public bodies to do then is to undertake a systematic consideration of how children's rights and interests are or will be affected by their decisions and actions. This is a statement from the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child in one of their general comments, which basically they elaborate on how the convention should be applied and interpreted. So they're saying, that, you know, every public body has to do this. And they recommend that it's done through things called child impact assessments. You may be familiar in other context with equality impact assessments or environmental impact assessments. It's a way of looking explicitly at the effect that something may or may not have on a particularly vulnerable group. One of the problems with this principle that's recognised by lawyers and others is that it's, it's pretty vague, isn't it? It's, it's pretty indeterminate, and it's been highly criticised by lawyers because of that. How do you actually apply it, and does it in effect just mean that the adults involved will decide from their own perspective, with their own interests, what's in any child's best interest at any given time? And I think there's a large element of that. But one of the ways in which um, I would suggest that you counteract that vagueness or indeterminacy is through a basic principle that it's not ever in children's best interest to breach their other rights. Okay, that's a basic principle of the convention, and in the context I think that we're looking at tonight, one of the important things then is it's important not to breach their right to an effective education, and that's really where I think the starting point for our discussion of best interests. So, um,
0: Laura would tell me what, the, well, what the, the rights or the standard was, and then I, I would be reflecting, well, okay, how does that then apply to assessment? And I suppose the most um, prime example that comes up all the time is the national assessment system that we have uh, in, in England, uh, probably specifically. Um, and there was, there's tension there, because when the national curriculum assessment system was instigated it was presented and there was an argument there that it was the best way in which to improve the learning of every child so there was a link being made between the sort of the testing and the raising of standards Um, it was also about giving public confidence uh, in expectations around standards and that there was a common approach for children. Wherever they were, irrespective of their context or their situation, they would be exposed to a common curriculum and a common assessment framework. And so they were the sort of the arguments, uh, or just some of it, for it. And this sort of notion of an equal entitlement was, was obviously very seductive and, and also very, uh, very positive and that was regardless of their situation or their location. Um, but George Modaos reminds us that for the more any quantitative social indicator is used for social decision making, the more likely it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it is intended to monitor. And that in a way is what has happened in, in the second bullet point. So the use of test results for things that they were never meant to be used for have become part of the problem. They're used for accountability measures for schools. And again, the House of Commons Select Committee was saying that that using them in this way has placed test results in a very complex context with wide-ranging consequences for schools, for teachers, for pupils. And so it's really, if you like, the national assessments are Madawis' social indicators. And they have been used to maximise outcomes for accountability and the maintaining of standards, which is the social decision making. And that's where the dire consequences come, and that's where the tension is. So the tensions between the purposes and uses of assessment, um, the inferences made about outcomes and the uses to which results are put. That's where it starts to misalign with the goals of education, as outlined in Article 3.1 by Laura Early. So, what it's trying to balance what is in a child's best interest, the primary interest of children alongside value for money, as well as the public interest of better standards of schooling for all pupils, We would see that as a best interest, but part of what that suggests is there's an underlying assumption then about equality of treatment, about equality of exposure, about equality of opportunity to learn, Um, and are all children exposed to the full curriculum and good preparation in order to do well and their situation in life. So that's how I was trying to interpret best interests. If you're trying to promote a standards and a system that will help and, and um, help all children, the tension then arises when that's actually implemented and how it's implemented and how it's used and how it's rolled out, given the equality of children in schools today.
1: <laughs> the second principle we looked at then was non-discrimination and this provision here is actually the most extensive non-discrimination provision in any international treaty there's only actually one uh, head of discrimination that's missing from the list and if you're very smart or think or quick reading you'll spot it and that is of the kind of normal heads that you might see in national legislation and that's sexual orientation And you can see how contentious that would have been during the drafting of the treaty to include sexual orientation in the uh, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. These treaties are signed up to by states' parties, and there's a huge conservatism, I think, around the treaty itself. And a lot the treaty itself is no gold standard. Um, The UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Education, Katarina Tomaszewski described it as the bare minimum to which governments have grudgingly agreed, okay, so the the provision is there, it's a very wide non-discrimination provision but it does have that gap. The right to be not to be discriminated against in education is a recurring theme and feature of international human rights law, all human rights derive from two basic principles, right to human dignity and the right to equality, so non-discrimination is naturally going to feature and the Committee on the Rights of the Child has Emphasised repeatedly, non-discriminatory access to the range of educational opportunity, including assessment. In their 2008 report on the UK, they didn't specifically criticise any assessment practice, but they did look at inequalities in outcome, and you know, were using educational um, data on educational attainment, particularly to point out problems with children from ethnic minority communi- communities in the UK. But with the advent of the Human Rights Act, um, a number of cases appeared in the domestic courts in which it's been argued that assessment practice has been discriminatory. I'm just going to give you an example of one from Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland courts. And this case, called In Re Newton's application, uh, involved a child who was dyslexic, who wanted to sit the Northern Ireland 11 plus test, which is in abeyance this year, but has been a feature of our uh, education system Uh, forever before that, it's the 30s. This year it's even more interesting legally, but that's another story. Um, But in Ray Newton's application, his mother argued that he should be given extra time to read and do the test, as is normal with other examinations, like GCSEs and A-level. And that isn't the practice, has not been the practice with the 11+. And it was argued that this breached his rights and not to be discriminated against in terms of his disability, his dyslexia. And the Northern Ireland High Court took evidence from the Department of Education, from SEA, our examinations body, basically to say that the 11 plus test was a test like no other, in the sense that it's not like a GCSE test because these children are competing with each other for a limited number of places. And in that instance, they said that it was not appropriate to give him extra time to do the 11 plus. And they said there were other ways in which he could argue after the event in terms of going to the school and arguing special circumstances very difficult decision but it reflects a kind of broader uh, approach I think to the UK courts not just the Northern Ireland courts when they're faced with European Convention arguments they very very rarely side with the parents Uh, very 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 few cases win and that's against I think the expectation of I think schools and the public where often these cases are very successful there's a doctrine called the margin of appreciation and basically it allows it's a very wide discretion as, about, as to how they get on with their education systems. It's rare that they win DH. The Czech Republic is an exception. So, sure, yeah.
0: so thinking about um, discrimination and non-discrimination in relation to assessment, and this is probably the area where I would have had uh, the most familiarity and have done quite a bit of work thinking about uh, inequality and, and, um, and injustice in, in terms of assessment, and I think when looking at um, Article Two, I broke it up I think into into two aspects and I think it 's interesting maybe the audience today that we, as exam boards and, and test developers, um, we do have obligations we have obligations to design assessments that are efficient, reliable valid and fair for all test takers. And we sort of stand by those uh, sentiments um, and they would be very technical aspects of test design and development. Um, And we probably adhere to sets of national and professional guidelines, professional standards such as the American Psychological Guidelines and the Code of Practice that we would have at uh, QCDA and, and Ofqual. So we have obligations to do the best that we can for all test takers. And effective validation often means that we're pre-testing, but that we're pre-testing on particular cohorts. And not all subgroups are represented in the pre-testing sample. And we know that, and it is a very difficult thing often to get all those subgroups um, together. But that's partly why... Uh, DH1, the check case, I think, because there wasn't um, adherence to trying to get all the subgroups of test takers involved in, in the pretest. There's also the notion of bias as well. We look into that and we take that very seriously too. Um, but often bias is seen as a technical issue. And not as the sort of the social implications or the social bias of the testing uh, that we do, and Cors has sort of cautioned us about the techniques of trying to find or identify bias. they're often limited and they're imperfect, and they're often simplistic as well. And they often don't get or they often belie the complexity of. The underlying situation in terms of bias in testing. So it becomes a technical exercise rather than trying to understand bias in its broader sense. So that's one way in which discrimination can occur in assessment. And then the other is really the sort of what I call the, when tests leave the the test development agency, and they go out into schools. They're implemented and they're rolled out into schools. What happens then, again, can uh, start to affect and children can be discriminated against. I mean, I suppose most of my academic life, I've been writing about how you assess, what you choose to assess. It ultimately impacts on children's performance. So those choices that you make about how you do it how it's structured, how it's rolled out, how it's implemented can affect performance. Um, and that assessment techniques have social consequences. They're not, um, they are not neutral. And so discrimination in this way plays out in different, in different ways. Um, the way that tests are designed and structured, implemented and used in schools... So theoretically no child is denied access to assessment and qualifications but it's the process that that happened before that before they probably get to the stage of uh, doing the qualification that decisions have been made. Teachers have made decisions about children based on test results that then affects whether they get to go for that qualification or not the level of qualification they get to go for the set that they're in the range of curriculum that's offered to them. So it's all those decisions can then impact on this area of non-discrimination. And in a way, the Committee on the Rights of the Child recognised the relationship between these decisions when it said, in decisions about transition to the next level of schools or choice of tracks, of streams, the right of the child to be heard has to be assured and the decisions deeply affect a child's best interests. So that's where they're saying that discrimination can happen and in, dis- in discriminating you're affecting their best interests. And so with that quote about the child having to be heard that's when we're coming on to the third article which is participation.
1: This is the final principle that we picked out for discussion and I think you may well have come across this. It's often cited in the educational world in relation to pupil voice or student voice. This is the provision of the Convention on the Rights of the Child that seemed to drive that whole pupil voice agenda. It's actually a very complex provision, much more complex than the term pupil voice uh, I think gives it credit to. It says states parties shall assure to the child who's capable of forming his or her own views... So all they've got to be is capable of forming a view, not of capable of expressing or forming and expressing a mature view, capable of forming a view, the right to express those views freely in all matters affecting the child. That's the first part, the right to freedom of expression. And the second thing, and this is what makes this provision entirely unique in international human rights law, the views of the child must be given due weight in accordance with the age and maturity of the child. And it's this due weight provision that makes it distinctive. Every adult in this room has a right to express their views. We all have a right to freedom of expression. None of us have a right. Or, uh, there's no, at no stage is anyone put under an obligation to listen to us or take us seriously. This provision is unique. It actually recognises children's relative lack of power over their own lives and places an obligation on state actors to take them seriously. So views given due weight is, uh, is one of the, considered to be one of the cornerstones of the convention, the rights of the child. It's also considered to be one of its most innovative provisions, and it certainly was one of its most controversial provisions. There are only two countries in the world that have not yet signed, sorry, UN countries that have not yet signed the convention, on the rights of the child. One of those is the United States, even though President Obama is now looking at it. And the second one is Somalia, which again is looking at it, but it's having difficulties in terms of its own government. And one of the reasons the US didn't sign was this particular provision because it's it's, it's a contentious provision because for some it's seen to undermine adult authority and potentially strikes at that. But it's an important provision, it's it's, seen to be crucial in recognising the fact that the child is a rights holder and is an active participant in the promotion, protecting and monitoring of their own rights. What does that mean? It means in some ways this isn't just a right in itself, that children have a right to be taken seriously. It's also seen to be a way of delivering rights, of realising rights because when you listen to children and take their views seriously you're less likely to breach their rights in other areas because children are unlikely to ask you to do that or unlikely to want that to happen. So the right applies to all aspects of education and all levels of decision making. So all state actors from government policy departments through, through test development agencies, through school policies and right down to classroom practice. And the Committee on the Rights of the Child has said that it's not enough in implementing this right to hear children's views mediated through um, the voices of adults, perhaps for instance from NGOs or other agencies, that government agencies must build a direct relationship with children, talk to them directly, and I think that's important in this context. And the final point about it is that it applies to all children, even very young children, and the Committee has issued a, a general comment on the rights of children in the early years where it is emphasised that we still need to listen to the the children who can express a view and that we need to find new ways of listening and and, and finding ways of finding out what it is that they want. So So as Laura said, probably
0: participation is the the right that we've heard about the most. And even in assessment, people would have been talking about the pupil voice. Um, But in some ways the raft of initiatives that have happened since the UK uh, signed the treaty uh, and the raft of initiatives in assessment, there's still no um, real involvement of children in decision-making. They may be consulted on one level, but there's not involvement in decision-making, and especially not in regard to the assessments that they're statutorily required to take or the qualifications that they will take either. Um, In the paper, we've actually cited Ofqual as as maybe um, an exception. And I think when Ofqual first started out, it was very clear that what they wanted to do was engage the learner. And that was very interesting to see. And so they've learner panels from primary children all the way up to the adult learner. Um, And if you go onto the website, there's lots of little um, video clips of... Days that Ofqual have had with these different groups of learners um, to try and get their um, views on the sorts of qualifications that they, they want or would, or would like. But, <laughs> so Ofqual are doing it and it's great to see but in a way it's not being done from a children's rights framework. And how more powerful might it be if it were being done from a children's rights framework? And the difference would be that not only would Ofqual have these panels, but there would be a very clear line um, and a transparent process to be seen how the views that are expressed by the children or the learners are then fed back into policy of Ofqual. Who are they being aimed at? Who is the person in Ofqual that you could point at and say that's the person who's listening to these views and is in some way incorporating them into decisions that Ofqual make? So it's that very clear line how it influences policy and practice and that would improve it um, to, to a greater degree. And in terms of awarding bodies, um, I suppose the paper we look at, policy, government, process, which I've sort of defined as awarding bodies, test developers, and then practice, which, is, which can also be that, but we've, we sort of use the practice as classroom practice. And then thinking about awarding bodies, test developers, there are examples of them gathering learner ex- uh, perspectives. And that can be in terms of research, development of items, talking to to young people in terms of what they might have found um, problematic. But in some ways, these are luxuries. They're not as a matter of course. Um, They've been found to be a bit expensive uh, and maybe quite uh, awkward to do and not very efficient. And what also seems to happen is that the learner engagement in awarding bodies is at the level of the website. There's a section on the website that's for learners. There's a learner portal. But it's about information giving. So the learner will go into the website and the exam board will be giving information to them, but there's no flow of information back. and I know from my own experience of trying to initiate this in another exam board, uh, not this one, that, that there's he- real hesitation. It's sort of seen as a, um, you know, they don't see the way in which children might be able to contribute to decision making about qualifications, about specifications, about exams, about tests. There's sort of, Um, a a reluctance or a hesitation around including children in that way and probably a disbelief that children would be best placed to comment on the qualifications that they have to do, the structure of them, the content of the things that are, uh, of of the specifications the subjects that are taught so I think there's there's obviously uh, work to be done there And it is significant, I think. The biggest changes that are coming about for young people will be changes to A-level, the introduction of the A-star, there's new specifications on GCSEs, there's a whole raft of reforms, 14 to 19, and there's no evidence of young people's involvement in any discussion or any decision-making around the way in which those uh, qualifications should play, or should play out. So there's no real consultation in meaningful ways. I think that's what we're we're trying to say. And so the paper itself goes into more detail in this. But it's sort of saying, well, if you were about participation in a children's rights framework, what would that actually look like? So that's where we're sort of getting to. So we've given you what the articles are, what, the ones that we think are important, how it might apply to assessment, or what are some of the issues and then we came, we, we came to this stage too well what would it look like what would it mean would it be different um, what would it, if it was compliant what would it contribute to policy development and practice of assessment and how do we make it happen if we want to make it happen and this is where we're going to move into the discussion um, and we have a few more slides in relation to discussion, but if anybody wants to uh, ask questions or if there's any clarification or join in the discussion now, uh, please feel free, but we'll, we'll sort of put up some of the things that we've been thinking about in terms of what, how we think a, uh, a children's rights compliant assessment system might look like. Just, okay,
1: yeah. I suppose this is the discussion point i'm interested in generally in terms of my work on children's rights and education and it's a, a dilemma for lawyers and from the human rights community and in all other contexts as well and that is that i mean what i presented to you tonight those two conventions i've said to you they're legally binding on the uk they're legally binding on all state actors and that's a, a legal fact but what we know in practice is often that countries sign up to conventions and then they don't actually implement them in practice that they get diluted by the time they hit the people they're intended to protect. And that happens not just in children's rights, it happens everywhere. And one of the dilemmas then for human rights lawyers really is then how, how do you implement it? What's effective in enforcement? So let's assume, and I've made that assumption tonight, and there's a lot of debate about this issue, is that children's rights are a good thing, and that is a contentious thing in itself that you might come back to. But assuming that we would want to implement these principles in the context of education and assessment, how do we make sure that they happen? And one, I think, helpful way of looking at this is a model by two authors called Goodman and Jinx, where they look at the ways in which you encourage states to act in accordance with their international obligations? How do you make states put these things into practice on the ground? And they talk about three approaches. Coercion, persuasion and acculturation. So coercion really is you force people to do it, that you introduce legislation that makes it a requirement that they they act in certain ways. And already across the four UK jurisdictions, we're seeing quite definite legislation in and around... uh, pupil participation decision making. That hasn't yet fully hit I think the assessment world but it's, it's, it's very obvious in other parts of the educational community. So you can require people to do it but of course there's a danger in requiring people to do something that they're not that committed to doing that they haven't actually, they don't actually agree with and I think school councils are a very good example of that. People think that the way to react to people participation is to have a school council But if you're not committed to the idea of taking children's views seriously, you can get very tokenistic school councils, and that can be very counterproductive because the children who are involved in those processes feel disempowered, the opposite of what you want to happen in a rights context. So coercion has a role, but it's not perfect. Persuasion, then, is where you try to convince people that this fits with their own value system that aligns to things that they think are important, so they decide that they want to do it. And there's quite a bit of evidence out there now about the value of something like participation, very good evidence, great studies, showing the value of pupil consultation in schools, the ways in which it improves learning, improves people's esteem, relationships with teachers. So we're building a lot of very persuasive material that has been used, I think, in training with teachers. The final one, and this is the one that Goodman and Jinx added in, is what they describe as acculturation. And this is where states or state actors agree to do it but aren't convinced So coercion is they have to. They feel they're required to by law. Persuasion is they want to. And acculturation, if you like, is they feel they ought to because everybody else is. So it's the right thing to do. And they argue very convincingly that acculturation is not necessarily a bad thing because over time if that this profession into professional pressure where they see say one exam body doing it and they're not doing it so they choose to do it because it looks good because somebody next door is doing it and, and this is seen to be part of a process that in time that actually becomes they start to believe their own hype and they change their practice so they might not have gone in convinced but they can end up convinced so these aren't a spectrum and they aren't alternatives that they can all be happening at one time. But these are three ways of looking. If we assume that we want to introduce children's rights principles, these are strategies that we can use to ensure that they happen on the ground. We've a bullet point there saying, is assessment the last bastion within education to engage? This is a discussion that Jeanette and I had. Education is known to be generally... Quite reluctant in the area of children's rights—not just assessment, but the educational community. If you look at other aspects of children's services, childcare, etc., there has been much more of an—I think it's been embraced more quickly. I think that's largely to do with the Children Act here in the Children Order in Northern Ireland, where the principles were implemented very early in those contexts. So education is a bit behind, but assessment seems even further behind there, and that's one of the points of discussion. And what we're asking really is: Does it require a reframing in our approach? Jeanette, there's
0: gone to Sorry, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff on these slides tonight. <laughs> um, but what we tried to do then in the paper was sort of ask ourselves questions. And we asked them at the policy level, as I said, the sort of the, the practice level and the classroom level. And we've identified sort of policy government, test developers, test agencies, and then teachers and, and, and classrooms. And started to ask ourselves questions across the three principles. I'm sorry, it's not very clear. And also, if you can read it, uh, if it there would be that you might not be so surprised at some of these questions because some of them look very much like um, questions that are raised in principles of fair assessment. So if you look to the Canadians um, or indeed people in New Zealand, they would have principles of fair assessment and they'd try to lay them out at different levels. And so it was trying to ask ourselves questions. If, it, if a test development agency or a body wanted to try and apply the principles, then this is um, some questions that they might uh, ask themselves so the best interests are test qualifications developed of value and relevance to children do we, do we ever sort of just ask that question about value and relevance are there robust procedures to ensure the quality of assessments for all children and you might say yes we do that anyway that's part of our professional practice is to um, to do that is the provision to access different forms of assessment and that argument that not one size fits all. So are there different forms in which children can um, show themselves to good effect? And maybe we do slightly more around the non-discrimination. There's a better practice, as I said, more in the technical way. There's better practice at trying to look at our tests and assessments. But are procedures in place that review and evaluate non-discriminatory assessment development? Do we have those as a matter of course? Are there monitoring procedures in place to review examinations, tests for technical and other forms of bias? Yes, probably, but maybe not always. Are all representative groups included in pre-testing procedures? Do students have the right to appeal directly to the test developer and awarding authority? Now, I think that's a very contentious issue in terms of the relationship of awarding bodies To what they call centres, to schools. That's the relationship. There doesn't seem to be a relationship between the warding body and the student. So the student has to go through the school to appeal. Then participation. This is where it starts to get, again, even there's hesitation. Are children represented on governance strategic committees? Are they consulted on specification and qualification development? How are children's views meaningfully fed back into design, development, and implementation of tests and examinations? Now, these are not exhaustive. These are—we probably just came to the end of trying to ask ourselves questions. But there would be more out there. Um, but it's just just a few to sort of um, try and think about what, how it might be how it might be different. So finally, I think what we're trying to say is that there would be no model of assessment which might be argued to be solely children's rights compliant. We're not standing up here saying you have to do it this way rather than that way. Um, But what does happen, I think, the rights-based perspective shifts the debates outlined earlier, and those debates with the movements, you know the the movements I talked about, about large scale formative assessment and the continued use of summative assessment and if you had a rights based approach it definitely would shift some of those debates that we've been having in the assessment community so we wouldn't focus on forms, types or uses the issue wouldn't be about formative versus summative both have their place Um, the issue in some ways um, is really about what's looking at what's in children's best interests. what is non-discriminatory and how are they participating so we're actually probably saying to counteract some of the first slides that it's slightly simplistic to say that high stakes testing per se is in breach of children's rights presence of high stakes, high quality external exams are motivating children like them children are aware of their value and they can be a source of good and provide a transparent way of allocation of resources um, and such as jobs, university places seen as fair, seen as transparent and actually some kids like them And so likewise, not all forms of formative assessment are good for all children. So that... um, And they may not necessarily be rights compliant. Because there's a lot of talk maybe that formative assessment in, in its various guises does enable children to participate by its nature, that the relationship changes between the teacher and the student the students participating in their own assessment, in the assessment of their learning. But for some children, the actual change in that relationship breaches their rights in non-discrimination. The relationship doesn't work, it breaks down, and the assessment isn't fair for for all children. Um, And so, maybe we were talking yesterday about radical thoughts uh, in assessment and I suppose what we're trying to offer tonight is only one radical way of rethinking maybe and thinking about assessment and it's that assessment could deliver children's rights so it's not seen as the sort of the baddie in the room, it's actually a very powerful enabler of rights and we know that could be possible because nobody reforms educational curriculum without having an assessment system attached and Paul Black talks about that very eloquently, always saying how governments use assessments to drive reform. So, but what seems to happen then, and this is what we would argue, is that it ends up having a narrow role. It usually ends up for accountability. Um, and so it doesn't deliver, in that narrow role, that vision for education. It sort of stifles it, and we don't, we don't get it. And the last government, in the children's plan that I mentioned before, had a vision of education to say that it was not just um, most children, but every child, the vision for education was for every child to make a success of their life Developing the broader skills, knowledge and understanding that they will need for this future world. And I think it is quite powerful if we could think of assessment as enabling that vision. And sort of reclaiming assessment for ourselves. um, And using it to enable children to access their rights. So I think that's, we've come to an end. We've covered quite a lot. We'll usually end by Thank you very much. all right okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank
0: you. this is a podcast from cambridge assessment for more downloads visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk